Your film is now ready to be shown. Good evening. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This is a special episode of the podcast. On October 7th, Tech Policy Press hosted a mini-conference called Reconciling Social Media and Democracy. While various solutions to problems at the intersection of social media and democracy are under consideration, from regulation to antitrust action, some experts are enthusiastic about the opportunity to create a new social media ecosystem that relies less on centrally managed platforms like Facebook and more on decentralized, interoperable services and components. The third segment of the day featured Corey Doctorow on the topic of competitive compatibility. You'll hear my opening for the event and then Corey's presentation. Subscribe to the Tech Policy Press podcast via your favorite podcast service for additional panels from the event, and be sure to subscribe to our newsletter at techpolicy.press. Now let's get into the discussion. We're going to slide straight into uh, our next uh, speaker, Corey Doctorow, who is, of course, a uh, well-known science fiction author, activist, journalist, and a poster of uh, excellent uh, graphic reminders of, of our uh, past and slightly more friendly consumer past in, is the only way I can think of to describe it. I'm very grateful for you joining us today. I've invited him here to talk uh, about competitive compatibility. Now, Corey is not one of the individuals who was part of the Journal of Democracy a series of essays that, that we've been talking about uh, so far. Uh, but rather was the author of, uh, well, he's written his own things on, on this, of course. Um, and I'm going to drop a particular piece uh, from ACM into the chat at the moment for anybody that wants to kind of uh, dig through that, this essay on competitive compatibility. Uh, and of course, he's written uh, many other things about this, but we'll perhaps uh, hear from him particularly about where his head is at at the moment on competitive compatibility. So Corey, thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. I live with two people who are sick and tired of hearing me talk about interoperability. So any chance to talk about, about it with other people is very good. Um, so you mentioned competitive compatibility. That is a term that we at the Electronic Frontier Foundation came up with because the phrase that we used for it before was just too much of a mouthful, although it's a little more self-explanatory. And that phrase is adversarial interoperability. So you can imagine that there's some interoperability that is planned, you know, either it's the subject of a mandate or there's some standardization and there's some interoperability that is indifferent. Like you, you walk into a gas station and you get a 50 cent USB charger that plugs into your car's cigarette lighter. People who made your car don't care that you're using it. They're not going to help you use it. They're not going to try and stop you from using it. But then there's adversarial interoperability, adversarial interoperability is when the manufacturer of an existing good or service really doesn't want you to plug something new into it and you do it anyway, even though they're trying to stop you. And adversarial interoperability is something that was once absolutely normal. Uh, you, if you're old enough, you might remember things like plug compatible mainframes. And today has become something of a legal minefield. So I wanted to start by introducing some ComCom examples because ComCom uh, competitive compatibility is what we've come to call adversarial interoperability, partly in deference to our non-English speaking uh, colleagues in Europe who are very interested in interoperability, but it's like listening to a German try to pronounce the word squirrel. It's, uh, it's, it's funny at first, and then it makes you feel bad about yourself. So ComCom -com is, a, is a much better term of art. 
Um, so some examples from history, uh, you may recall from the turn of this century that the Mac was on the ropes. Uh, if you ran a, an office uh, and you had a designer who used a Mac and you had a bunch of other people who used Windows machines and one of those Windows machines users was uh, unwise enough to try and ask the person on the Mac to uh, read a Word document, chances were they wouldn't be able to open it with Microsoft's uh, Word for the Mac. Um, if they did, it would be corrupt in some way. And then if they were unwise enough to save it and try and share it back out again with their Windows using co colleagues, it would be forever cursed and like no one would be able to open it and restore it to its original format. And this was an actual major impediment. I was a CIO at the time running heterogeneous networks. We were actually buying designers Windows machines uh, to sit next to their Macs so that they could communicate with their colleagues. And we were in the process of transitioning to um, actually just uh, switching them all over to Windows uh, and installing you know, Adobe products for Windows, Quark for Windows, and so on, and just ditching the Mac altogether. Um, Microsoft had uh, uh, two things going for it at the time. It had network effects. Obviously, every time someone created a Word doc, that was a reason to get a computer that could read a Word doc. And every time someone had a computer that could read a Word doc, that was a reason to believe that you could use Word to communicate with them. And that was how they attained scale. But the way that they maintained that scale was not through network effects. It was through switching costs. Because once you left behind the Windows world, you could no longer communicate with all those other users. And so the price that you had to pay to leave the Windows world was very, very high. And Apple solved this in a really clever way. Uh, Steve Jobs did not go on bent knee to Bill Gates and beg him to make a, an adequate version of Office for the Mac. Instead, he got some engineers to reverse engineer the file formats for Word, Excel, and uh, PowerPoint and created the iWork suite of Keynote, Pages, and Numbers uh, and um, obliterated the switching costs. You may remember there was an ad campaign at the time, the Switch campaign. Uh, it would be very easy now, unprecedentedly easy for you to switch from Windows to a Mac. And the switching costs are now so low that there's no reason to be bound by that um, that uh, network effect. That the network effect can be can be a way to grow, but without the switching costs, you can't stay big uh, if you're not good. And since Microsoft wasn't good, people switched to Macs, re rescued the platform. Now, I want you to consider what would happen if you tried to do this with iTunes today. Um, if you tried to do this with iTunes today. Uh, you would be sued into a radioactive crater. They would make um, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act arguments about it, notwithstanding the Van Buren case. They would say that your reverse engineering of certain elements of the stack violated Section 12 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Um, they would also probably uh, try and get you for contributory infringement. Um, they would also argue that you were engaged in tortious interference and probably bring some other claims against you as well, patent claims and so on. There is a thicket that has grown up around ComCom. Uh, the nature of the need to make ComCom, the underlying process for doing ComCom, and the value that we can get out of ComCom haven't changed. But the legal picture for firms that want to engage in it has changed very dramatically. And what's happened is that the firms that are arguing against ComCom, uh, for example, right to repair is a form of ComCom, right? I made this thing. I say only I'm allowed to fix it. Someone else comes along and asserts that they can fix it. Those firms that are doing it, they, they all benefited from ComCom in their early days. You know, Microsoft, if it could only have worked on IBM PCs, would have been a, a, a very small company. But because there were IBM PC compatibles, 
that used ROMs that uh, Phoenix Computing made, Microsoft was able to capture a giant market and grow very big indeed. Um, Google, if it had to, uh, if if it uh, couldn't have told all the world's websites that it was a web browser and asked for them to serve up the web pages, would have had a hard time indexing the web. Uh, every one of these sites has relied in some way on ComCom, Facebook had a service that would let you read your MySpace mail from Facebook so that you could leave MySpace behind and, and, and enjoy Facebook, but not have to leave behind your MySpace friends. They have all uh, agreed on common lobbying positions, common briefing to uh, judges as amici, uh, common public communications that condemn ComCom and its many tactics as variously forms of piracy, cyber terrorism, and, and many other uh, gross offenses. And this is not unusual. Every pirate wants to be an admiral after all. What is unusual is how successful they've been and how durable it has made their uh, monopolies and how much it has captured our imagination and made us believe that those monopolies are kind of the end state of our networks. And so this has given rise to a form of advocacy for resolving the many problems of big tech platforms that I call fixing the platforms, right? Um, uh, The problem with Facebook is that Mark Zuckerberg is very bad at being the social media czar of 3 billion people. We must either pressure his board to replace him with someone who's better at that job or bring to bear such pressure on him as will make him be better at that job. And uh, this is contrasted with what I think is the correct strategy, which is not fixing the platform, but fixing the internet, which involves abolishing the position of social media czar for 3 billion people. And no one should have that job. It's not just that someone has the wrong job, uh, that it's that the job shouldn't exist in the first place. And so these um, uh, ComCom tactics offer a mechanism by which we might accomplish a reduction in the switching costs that would allow us to unravel many of the uh, advantages that uh, are used to maintain the dominance by these firms. So to take a real world example, uh, at EFF, we've worked with a community of breast cancer previvors. Uh, these are women or uh, people with breasts who have the BRCA gene. They're at a high risk themselves of contracting breast cancer. And because it runs in families, their daughters, sisters, mothers, and and other relations are at that risk or are suffering from breast cancer or have died from breast cancer. And this community is very important to them. And they joined Facebook about a decade ago at a time in which the platform was very aggressively courting medical communities. And what they found was that Facebook uh, was not Um, being forthright in the way that it described the privacy protections it had for this very sensitive community. Specifically, one of the founders of this community's uh, discovered an, a bug on Facebook's platform that allowed her to enumerate the full membership of every Facebook group, uh, whether or not you were a member of it, which for them was a grave concern. And they brought that to Facebook. Facebook characterized this as a feature request, not a bug report. And they won't fix it. They said that they weren't going to. They weren't going to repair it. And eventually, after pressure, they moderated it, the this error a little, so that you could enumerate the members of a group that you were a member of, which is for them still not private enough. But they face a huge collective action problem, having all arrived on Facebook and accumulated a sizable number of people. Having after they did migrate from a private message board to Facebook, they really are not in any position to organize a national "Everybody Quit Facebook Day" next Wednesday at 3 p.m. But what they could do, in theory, is they could stand up uh, a standalone uh, diaspora instance or or other uh, messaging platform, and they could use ComCom tactics, um, bots, autopilots, scrapers, to allow them to both receive and push messages into Facebook without being on Facebook, without subjecting their use uh, to Facebook scrutiny, uh, and more importantly, 
to provide a, a, transi a, a transitional state, an intermediate state between being on Facebook and not being on Facebook, because those messages could be appended with a footer that read, today, 13% of our message group's traffic came from off Facebook. When this reaches uh, 60%, we will start a 30-day timer, and then we're going to sever the link. Uh, you know, figure out what you want to do, figure out which community you want to belong to. Now, that's a way that they could ooze off the platform instead of jumping off the platform all in one go. And there are serious privacy issues with this. And I, I wrote a paper with my colleague, uh, Bennett Ciphers, called Privacy Without Monopoly, that talks about how, while there are serious privacy issues with this, Facebook is not the company that we should trust to adjudicate them for reasons that I hope are radioactively obvious to everyone who is listening to the sound of my voice today, especially this week. Um, and what we do need is a standalone sturdy privacy law that allows us to uh, objectively consider what any interoperator is doing and determine whether or not they are doing something that accords with privacy. And that would apply equally to Facebook and to the people operating this diaspora server. Now, if you're familiar with things like the Access Act or various other proposals, uh, platforms, not protocols, Daphne's work, uh, Frank Fukuyama's work, and, and uh, the middleware proposals, you may be wondering why this couldn't be accomplished with a mandate. And it absolutely could. We could build a standard either under uh, government aegis or uh, out of the kindness of Facebook's own heart. And we could stand up APIs that allowed, allow us to do this without all the guerrilla warfare of bots and scrapers, which after all would be constantly under threat from Facebook. They would be trying to identify the bots and shut them down and you'd be modifying the bots to, bots to fix them. Now, Facebook has 3 billion users, which means that by definition, it has 3,000 one in a million behaviors being exhibited every single day. So their ability to distinguish a bot from a user is going to be really hard. They'll catch a lot of dolphins in their tuna net. But still, we could imagine a sturdier version of this. And here's where I want to talk about where uh, ComCom fits in with other forms of interoperability, with planned interoperability, managed, mandated, cooperative interoperability. And I think that it is not a replacement for, but rather a stiffener of it. And to explain why, I want to return to this idea of right to repair and briefly recount what happened when Massachusetts passed a right to repair bill for cars. In 2012, Bay Staters went to the uh, ballot box. They overwhelmingly passed a ballot initiative that mandated that automakers provide independent mechanics with uh, diagnostic codes that could be read off the car's uh, wired networks, but are called the CAN buses, so that they could affect their own independent repairs. And immediately, the automakers re-engineered their cars so that service messages did not go over the CAN bus. They went over a new wireless network that they built into new models, which was not covered under the mandate. It took eight years for Bay Staters to revisit this and go back to this, this question and pass uh, a new uh, ballot initiative in 2020 that said that, you know, for avoidance of doubt, we meant the wireless networks too. And now they're in court and eventually they're going to get back to this. And in the meantime, there's a lot of cars independent mechanics can't fix. And some of them are closing up shop and going to work for big three automakers. And so even when we get the mandate fixed at the speed of legislation and regulation and not the speed of market actors or individual self-help measures, we may not have the mechanics to do the repairs. And so what ComCom represents is, a, is it represents the cost of, of uh, defection, the cost of subverting the mandate. If Facebook says, well, we're going to keep this mandated Access Act API, but we're going to change our internal data structure so that it doesn't connect to anything useful. You know, like the fire department might say, you have to put a tap on the front of your house for the fire hose. 
and you do that, but then you disconnect your water main from it. So the tap's still there. You're still in compliance. It just doesn't connect anything. If Facebook were to do that, the response wouldn't be eight years in which they could play cute in front of senatorial committees and the FTC and special regulators. Uh, it would be an immediate response of users uh, quickly implementing bots and scrapers and other guerrilla warfare acts. And I have been told by senior executives at big tech firms, and the record is replete on this question, that firms would much rather uh, endure a managed form of competition, which has quantifiable risks, than engage in endless guerrilla warfare with uh, other market actors. I mean, that's what happened with Apple and Microsoft. Right after Apple made pages and, and Keynote and Numbers, Microsoft standardized the Office file formats. That's where DocX comes from. Because once it was no longer a competitive advantage to maintain all these obfuscated, non-interoperable file formats that, after all, were a huge pain for Microsoft users, not just Apple users, Microsoft threw in the towel and became a non-adversarial interoperator. So this is the, um, this is the equilibrium. And, and I want to close now by saying that the point of all of this is not competition for its own sake. It is competition for self-determination. That ultimately, the thing that is going to determine whether we live in a technological dystopia or not is whether people who use technology are going to be able to configure it so that it serves their interests rather than the interests of shareholders of the firms that made them. And this is where competitive compatibility also makes a decent adjunct to, uh, to managed interoperability, to mandated interoperability. Because firms, if any of you have ever done standardization work, firms are constantly seeking to tilt standards and mandates to their advantage. Uh, and um, it's very hard to win a fight at the W3C against Microsoft or Google or Facebook. Um, frankly, the way that you win at the W3C is uh, by throwing enough engineers and lawyers at it so that every secretary, every committee chair, every subchair, and every note taker, and uh, um, everyone who is in charge of the mailing list works for your company, and everyone who is adverse to you has one half-time staffer on it. That one half-time staffer instead could be making bots that are tying your ops people in knots all day long and turning your users into furies who want to know why it is they've just had their accounts terminated for being bots. Right, so this is the thing that gets them to play nice. It's not the it's not the whole solution, but it is the thing that allows us to assert be, um, uh, measures beyond that which we are willing to standardize or that which a regulator is willing to impose. Measures that are ultimately about the user's own dignity and lived experience with their technology. This would allow, for example, people who are using the W3C standard for DRM on video to write their own look-ahead routine that would identify upcoming strobe effects in movies so that if they had photosensitive epilepsy, it wouldn't trigger seizures in them. That's something we proposed to the W3C for its DRM, but Netflix wouldn't have it, and so it's not in the standard. Right? So this would allow us to create a space in which we could find out whether or not allowing people with epilepsy to avoid grand mal seizures was the route to uh, 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 an endless round of piracy or just was the humane thing to do. And if it turned out we were wrong, if it turned out that they weren't willing to do it, well, then people with photosensitive epilepsy would still be able to implement this. And so there are ways that we can con contemplate doing this. Uh, maybe we'll get into that in the Q&A. We could pass a law that defends interoperators, that creates a defense in law. 
Um, we could uh, create a procurement guideline that says that Uncle Sam's not going to buy anything from you unless you promise not to sue them uh, to block interoperability. We could settle with the FTC when, when Facebook inevitably throws in the towel and we could say, here's your new special master. Anytime you want to bring a claim that might implicate interoperability, their job is to make sure you're not doing it uh, pretextually to shut down an interoperator. There are lots of ways we can, we can imagine doing it, but any one of them or in concert would be an absolutely vital adjunct to a mandate. Corey, I do want to actually push you on exactly that last point that uh, you were making around legislation. Um, are there, uh, of, of course, there is, you know, there are five bills that the House has put forward around antitrust and competition. One of them has to do with uh, data portability and interoperability. Um, what are you enthusiastic about? What are the problems with the proposals in front of Congress at the moment? And are you aware of uh, any sense of momentum with those particular proposals? So I am, I'm one of the world's worst congressional criminologists. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to handicap their chances. The bill that I'm, that I think is most relevant here is the access act, as you mentioned, the interoperability act. I think the access act is excellent, but incomplete. Um, when I get a sec, I'll find you the URL and paste in my, uh, the, the kind of five point critique I have of it. Um, the, there are some things that are just, I'm baffled that they're not in there because I think they were proposed and didn't, didn't end up in there. Like, um, it needs a circuit breaker. Uh, right now, uh, as it stands, a firm that determines that an API is being abused, like maybe the, it's got like a, a bug that allows a bad actor to extract more information than was covered by the regulation and that could expose users to privacy risks, they can't shut down the API. And I understand that you know pretextual shutdowns would be really bad. So we could establish a good faith defense and a notification requirement within 24 hours and uh, stiff fines for anyone who's determined to have done it on bad terms. But my fear is that without a circuit breaker, what's going to happen is that um, someone will uh, figure out how to hack one of these mandatory APIs. They'll extract a couple of billion users information. They'll say, look, we, this is what happens when you allow people to interoperate with Facebook. Only Facebook can save you from Facebook, not third parties. And, um, and then that will put the whole project of interoperability in bad odor forever. Um, that's, that's, I think, a major problem. Another major problem is the compositional makeup of the committee that evaluates interoperability. Uh, as it stands, it's um, uh, at least, I think it's, it's uh, no fewer than two members of the dominant platform, two members of SMEs, one NIST advisor and uh, you know two members of a public interest group, and you could build a compliant committee that consisted of one thousand Facebook lawyers and engineers and five other people, and that is not a committee that is going to build an API that challenges Facebook shareholder interests and upholds the public interest. So again, this is a kind of easy fix. And there are a few others that are in there that are that are somewhat technical. Um, I think the biggest problem with the Access Act is it, it, it's, it's not backstopped by a freestanding uh, national privacy law with a private right of action. Uh, and so what we're going to end up with is the Access Act, and then we'll end up with another, you know, I don't know, open App Store Act or some other thing that implicates privacy. And each of them is going to have a distinctive privacy regime. And, uh, and none of them will have private rights of action. So unless you can convince, you know, our, our uh, future president, Kid, Kid Rock's uh, attorney general to go to bat for you, uh, those privacy violations aren't going to help, aren't, aren't going to be addressed. 
Corey, I also want to ask you, you know, strangely, I moderated a panel yesterday on the idea of right to repair. And uh, we were talking about vacuum cleaners and other appliances and the, the, all the various uh, and sundry ways that industry will uh, attempt to kind of uh, get round, you know, right to repair or thwart similar to the type of uh, thing that you just mentioned to do with cars. Um, even if we were to push in this direction of decentralization and interoperability, uh, competitive compatibility, um, I don't know, what's the time horizon, do you think, for all this to sort of sort out where we can get past, well, we're doing this, to uh, we're giving it a go and we've got first volley of, of effort around it, to industry has you know, uh, figured out its conniving ways to uh, neuter whatever uh, th- thing that we're doing. You know, how long does all this take? I mean, a lot of folks would say, well, with regard to, well, they have said on this call that um, this is a crisis and we've got, you know, a, a real urgent situation on our hands. So I'll tell you why I like interop is because it doesn't require that you, that the whole problem be solved before you can do anything, you know, as Orwell used to say, jam yesterday, jam tomorrow, no jam today. This gives you, this gives you a tangible benefit right away, especially adversarial interoperability, comcom. And um, the victories build on victories. It, I think it, it, this is a uh, slowly at first, then all at once kind of uh, kind of situation where you give people self determination, you lower the switching costs, you reduce um, the network effects, you allow people to defect this disciplines firm so that they either tilt their policies so that they're less beneficial to their shareholders, or they suffer the consequences of losing users. Either way, they lose money. When they lose money, they are less capable of defending themselves against um, antitrust claims and other forms of regulation. You know, the reason that IBM was able to outspend the entire DOJ antitrust division for 12 consecutive years from 1969 to 1981, whereupon the DOJ dropped the antitrust case is because they were a monopolist. Right. This is the problem. The fundamental problem with antitrust law is that if you have monopoly rents, you can mobilize them to fight antitrust enforcement. And so this starves the beast. Right. If we tackle this, then we open the space for things like a meaningful consent regime that at the stroke of a pen wipes out all behavioral advertising. Because if you actually had to consent to every use of behavioral advertising, it would take you 20 minutes. Right. No one is going to spend 20 minutes clicking yes, 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 yes. Uh, before they get to see a web page that might collect their telemetry. And if they don't, and if the privacy law is well-written, so if you don't say yes, the answer is no, then there is no behavioral data to be gathered. And that um, uh, also eliminates the uh, kill zone. So all of a sudden, we the fact that we have a, a handful of dominant firms that uh, net tens of billions of dollars a year in pure profit and see year-on-year double-digit growth would not be bizarrely a disincentive to to a uh, uh, an investor thinking about backing a new market entrant and would instead be what it has historically been, which is a, a signal to other market actors that they should go in and whittle down those margins. So uh, unbundling and other forms of interop open up the policy space for other interventions, right? For privacy interventions, for interventions on, on um, uh, permitting third-party moderation, for interventions on uh, uh, just standing up third-party servers that have more robust anti-harassment policies uh, that are federated with Facebook, but that that allow for a local determination of what crosses a line. And all of that weakens Facebook's power. They can't pay Nick Clegg millions of dollars a year to go around the world and tell everyone that it's great. And you know, when that happens, when when they when they 
cut the kombucha budget to zero because they've got to they got to hoard their dry powder, then we can actually bring them to heel. Uh, we are just about out of time. We've got one minute left, but you know, a, a lot of focus is, of course, on the uh, role of government in uh, punitive regulatory uh, activity. Are there other things that, of course, the government has a you know, huge purse to be an investor in possibilities? Mm-hmm. Uh, are there other things the government could be doing to take us towards this future? Well, I mentioned procurement. Like, I think it's it's bonkers that there's a school district in this country that buys Google Classroom without getting a a, a meaningful guarantee that they can plug third-party software into Google Classroom, even if Google doesn't like it, right? That's just, that's just prudence, mere prudence to do that. And to do otherwise is imprudent, grossly negligent. So, you know, um, interoperability and procurement have gone together since the Civil War when the Union Army told rifle makers that if they didn't make interoperable rifle, rifles, they couldn't sell to the Union Army. That's, you know, they didn't want to run out of ammo or parts. I'm a pacifist. I'd like to disarm the army, but like we could go, we could go pretty far by uh, just using the power of the of federal procurement to do this. And, you know, starting in, in aerospace wouldn't be bad. David Dayan's got a wonderful chapter in Monopolized about how uh, a couple of hedge funds worked out that in aerospace, there are a bunch of single source parts in fighter jets and in other key aerospace components. And so they bought the companies that made these parts And then they offer them to Boeing and other military contractors for uh, uh, significantly below cost so that they would be embedded in all aerospace applications. And then they charge 10 million percent markups on replacement parts. So, you know, this should just be in our procurement guidelines, not just not just for interop reasons and human dignity and technological self-determination, but because you're a sucker if it's not. Corey Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm very grateful to you uh, for for taking the time to do this. Um, And where can people follow all of your great work? Well, I work with EFF, so EFF.org. And then I have a daily blog and whatnot uh, at pluralistic.net. And you can find my books at craphound.com. Thank you, sir. That's it for this special episode from the October 7th Tech Policy Press event, Reconciling Social Media and Democracy. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.